Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. I'm Andy McClanahan, and today my guests and I will be discussing kinship care. What it is, what social workers need to know, and what needs to change to ensure children in kinship care and their carers receive the support they need. With me for today's conversation is Natalie Boys, who is a kinship carer, and I'm very pleased to welcome back Sam Turner, Head of Policy and Public Affairs at the charity Kinship, and Dr Paul Shuttleworth, Postdoctoral Fellow at the School of Education and Social Work at Sussex University, co-host of the Do Do Social Work podcast, and probably most importantly, former colleague of mine, Paul. How are you doing? Welcome back. I'm good. Good, thank yes. you. Great to be back. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Is that how you start your CV, former colleague of Andy McLean? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is yeah, now. Something like that. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. actually, do you know what? Every time on my CV, every time I introduce myself, I always put social worker first. Doesn't matter what I've done. So there you go. There you go. Absolutely. That's where I come from. Awesome. Great. Natalie, how are you doing? I'm okay. Thank you. Welcome to Let's Talk Social Work. This is your thank first time you. on the podcast? It is, yeah. First time. Great. Ever. It's going to be absolutely awesome. And Sam? You're back. You were with us, wasn't it February? Isn't that right? I think it was. It was just after the government had published their strategy. Yes. So that's the Stable Homes Built on Love strategy. And in that, we did, we touched on kinship care quite a bit because that's that's throughout the strategy. But we're going to talk more. After we made that podcast, Sam was very keen that we come back and we kind of dive into kinship care as a topic more, which I think is really, really important. I'm glad we can do it. Oh, you're very welcome. You're very welcome. Wasn't wasn't kind of setting myself up for a big thank you there. That was just a bit of background <laughs> for the audience. Um, <laughs> so yes, uh, Stable Homes Built on Love, that was published in response to the Independent Review of Children's Social Care in England, led by Josh McAllister. We discussed kinship care in that episode. We discussed the role it plays in plans for looked after children. Um, but it's something we're going to explore in more detail today. Before we get into the detail, though, I think it's really important that we get a really clear picture of what kinship care is. Paul, you're an academic. You've done an awful lot of research in this area. Can you summarise briefly, as an expert would, uh, what kinship care is? Sure. Okay. so briefly, as an expert would, apparently. um, So it's when uh, children are placed in the long term care within the family constellation uh, with family members. So uh, those family members can be related or they can be non-related family members. So that can be kind of family friends, long time family friends that part of kind of family as we see family, as we feel family are. Um, And that usually happens when children can't remain with their previous primary carers. And those previous primary carers are usually birth parents. Um, and then if we look in terms of around the world, so it's the most used type of um, out-of-home care, although it's remaining within the home, for children around the world. Um, and in high-income countries, middle-income countries, we start dividing it into um, things like informal kinship care, so when there's kind of no social services involvement, or formal kinship care where there is social service involvement, and it's usually in these kind of in these countries as a response to child protection concerns in the majority. Thank you, Paul. That's really helpful. And when I meant by summarising it as an expert, would I used to have a boss who would always say, if you're an expert, you can tell me, you know, in a minute. If you're not, you can oh. waffle for 10. So I think that was a bit of a minute. Well done. That was oh, brilliant. Oh, thanks. Uh, oh, so yes. I am an expert. Excellent. You are. You are. Um, <laughs> I will put that on my CV then. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. Um, now, should kinship care, should we consider it a subcategory of foster care or is that the wrong way of looking at kinship care? I don't think it's a helpful lens to, to think of it as a subcategory of foster care. Um, I think it's important to kind of consider kinship care not as a subcategory or kind of a direct equivalent to any particular thing. It's inherently its own kind of unique 
messy, nuanced, complex thing, just as foster care is, just as adoption is. Um, and I think kind of part of the challenge we've had certainly in national policy terms over the past however long has been that governments have successively viewed kinship care as a nice sort of discrete area of a, a different sort of form of alternative care, particularly sort of fostering or adoption whenever it suits the particular kind of policy wind of the day. Um, and I think a lot of what we're trying to call for is to a kind of recognise the fact that kinship care exists first and foremost, that kind of base level awareness is really important. But then secondly, make sure that we are directing the right kind of support, the right kind of resources that recognise that kinship care is, is unique. Um, Natalie, I said in the introduction, you are a kinship carer. You're going to be able to bring an awful lot of um, light to this conversation, uh, talking about your own experiences. But I was at a conference recently and one speaker explained at the conference, now this is a quote from them, emotional and relational intensity gives kinship care its power and meaning. Does that sentiment resonate with you from your experience as a kinship carer? Well, 100%, yeah. Because my little one, he's my nephew, um, he's my birth brother's son. So that straight away, it's the connections there already from birth. Um, so yeah, it really does. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. And does um, kinship care, one of the things that was throughout the Stable Homes Built on Love uh, strategy, it's right there in the title, and also in Josh McAllister's review, was kind of discussions around providing love to children in care. You know, so you can meet a child's physical needs, emotion, you know, their um, educational needs, but something which is often a gap is how you provide stability, how you provide love, how you provide a sense of belonging to a child who's in the care system. Now, I suppose I'm kind of almost answering my own question, but does kinship care enable love to be given to children in a way which is absent from I'm thinking foster or residential care if we Natalie if you kind of speak about your experience first I I, I'd say so yeah because like I've known the little one since since he's been born anyway um and and I think I feel like there's that family bond there anyway so that bond were there straight away so for me it just it, it comes natural to give him love almost like one of my own children yes yes um, Paul, what do you think? Uh, I have a problem with love, so uh, okay. not love in general. Obviously, I love, I, I'm fine with people uh, loving each other, but I just think it's a really difficult concept. So, um, I suppose in my work, I kind of break things down in terms of that that uh, things like um, connectivity, trust, um, because if we start talking about love as a concept. We could go on for hours. You know, Adele's written loads of songs about love. Um, the greatest plays are about love. So it's very subject subjective. It it, um, it alters, and we can't. Uh, I'm I'm with kind of Rebecca. You know, we can't just build things on love. We need to build things on resources, having the right financial support, having the right practical support, rather than just stable homes built on love. Um, and I think. Um, the other thing that I don't like about love being banded around too much is that unless you're someone like he's he's happy to say that I don't believe that, that he had, not, I don't believe it, that you have a problem with love. Um, it's really hard to argue, argue against it, isn't it? Because everyone will say, of course, of course, there needs to be love in the system. And actually, of course, there needs to be more love within kind of families that can't remain with their with their with their birth parents. Of course, we know that. But as a measure, I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's useful. You know, how do we respect? How do we invest in these families? How do we recognise these families? That's what that's what's really important to me. 
And I think the shortcoming, well, what was identified as shortcoming in terms of stable homes built on love was and the episode we called it based on a quote from Becca Pierre, who I think you were talking about, Paul, mm. who was um, on the episode, uh, Stable Homes Built on Air. Yes, talking about love when you don't resource it, when you're not prepared to put your money where your mouth is, can feel pretty empty. Um, but kind of then moving on, I suppose, if we look at the benefits of kinship care in terms of well-being of children, you know, um, setting aside what we've just spoken about for the last couple of minutes, we talk about sense of continuity, greater sense of stability for children that can't be looked after by their birth parents. Is that is that really what kinship care brings? So um, I'm currently writing a book about kinship care and, and that chapter is on uh, permanence, emotional permanence. So that's what you're kind of talking about, Andy. And um, emotional permanence is vital, having that kind of sense of permanence. We know that's kind of crucial. Uh, people like June Thoburn have kind of talked about it. Um, Schofield, all of these different people, they, they've talked about it, um, having that sense of the permanence for the, the right sense of permanence for the right child in the right place. The trouble is that this sense of permanence has been built on kind of ideals around adoption and fostering. So it's been on ideals about substitute families away from previous families. Now, that's not what happens in kinship care. There's complex relationships that are going on. And carers and children, I would say, if you look at my research, they're working really, really hard to make those 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 really complicated things things work, those complicated relationships work. So a sense of permanence for children, and this is again found in, in my research, it doesn't just happen between um, a substitute parents, you know, here comes Natalie and now therefore I have a sense of permanence with Natalie. Actually, children are still having a sense of permanence with their previous carers, also thinking about future, you know, how family roles kind of um, will be shared across the family. So sense of permanence for kinship children in kinship care happens across the family in much more nuanced ways than just this kind of sense of permanence from one carer to another that makes sense i like that and i think i I think it's an important consideration because you know in a previous role i worked particularly a lot with care experience young people who were sort of formally looked after and predominantly were had experiences and kind of unrelated foster care or residential provision and that sense of permanence in the way that it's used and particularly sort of children's social care policy circles is around where you're living the family arrangement that you're living it's not around that kind of idea of emotional permanence that Paul was talking about and even for them they may sort of demonstrate permanence in terms of the arrangement of the people that they're living with but they're still navigating all of the complex family dynamics, every single young person I ever talked to had a story to tell about kinship care in some way, even if they weren't in kinship care. It's around that time they lived with their nan for however many weeks because they couldn't live with their mum or dad or whatever it would be. And I think that aspect of when we talk about permanence is stuff that often gets missed. And you kind of see actually the overlap between stories and family arrangements like kinship care and the overlap that you have in these kind of more formalized alternative out of home care settings as well Mm. and it's much easier for us to kind of fixate on these kind of outcomes which are things like how long has a child remained in one place and actually that's not really what's you know that can lead to a sense of permanence a sense of feeling that you belong but for lots of children it doesn't necessarily do that and actually we know that uh, kinship carers are less likely to come forward to social workers, to social services, because they're scared 
quite rightly in some cases, we know from research, because social workers may say, well, if you can't look after the kids, then we will get involved and, and different processes are happening. So carers can be really, really scared to actually come towards kind of social services, um, especially with negative kind of stuff that goes on in the media about social services. So actually some of the problems that are happening within the family home cannot be seen, cannot be addressed, cannot be picked up upon yet they still remaining within the family home. So just because some a child is in remains within the family home doesn't mean necessarily that they're happier remaining there. Okay. So I, I was because I was struggling to kind of kind of latch on to this. But so are you suggesting mm. that it's something to do the permanence is more of a kind of a, a qualitative uh, thing rather than if you're thinking of time passing in terms of a measurable quantitative um, uh, measurable concept just saying mm. that a child was with a certain placement for 10 years, that is not a sign of um, meaningful permanence. Would that, is that kind of what you're getting at? It can be, yes, yeah, so it can be an indicator. It can absolutely be an indicator. So legal orders, for example, we get all the statistics from the legal orders. We get all the statistics in terms of how long a child has been in certain places. And that's data that we see as hard evidence. But actually what you're talking about, that qualitative stuff, how families are able to do family, that's the important stuff, because all those those things can lead to a sense of permanence. So some of the kids that I've spoken to, for example, say, actually, I want to be adopted. That's what make me feel like I belong. So there we have a link. But for other kids, it's different. So we need to, again, it's about talking to families, isn't it? Finding out what it means to kids to feel that sense of permanence. How can we achieve that for specific children? Natalie, coming back to what you were saying earlier um, about the, your situation and the little guy you care for, um, in terms of that sense of the, 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 the child staying within the wider family being claimed by the family, w- would you see that as having had a normalising effect on him, on his behaviour? Well, yeah, because to be honest with you, he came to me at 10 weeks old so and he's now 10 months old. And to me... Oh, wow. If, I'm trying to say it in the nicest way possible. If... I don't think he really understands what's happened. Totally, um, I'm so sorry. I, I didn't realise the little guy was that young. Yeah. Sorry. And yes. I think for him, it's we're trying to make it as normal as possible in the family home, um, and it, it's just normalised now. Currently, there's no contact happening with birth mother, um, so I think for him, it's this is just normal for now. Um, I mean, I don't know going down the line, it is a worry in mind what's going to happen in the future. But for now, we're just trying to normalise family life for him and make him feel, you know, his, his, his permanence is here. And I suppose then just you have, do you have your own kids as well? I do, Natalie? yes, two of them. So when it comes to, I suppose, their situation, if if the little guy were to move on or go back to his birth father, that will have a knock on impact for your own kids, I'm guessing. Definitely, one hundred percent. Yeah, um, yeah. Because they they've bonded with him like like a little brother. Um, sure. You know, you know, my daughter absolutely dotes on him. Um, so yeah, I think. I mean, we have got an SGO in place now, but who's saying five years down the line that can't change? You, you just you just don't know. But yeah, I think it'd absolutely it would. I think it'd break my own children if he were to go anywhere. And if anyone's listening who doesn't know what an STO is, that's a special guardianship order. Yeah. 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 And Paul, could you tell us just what that provides for? Oh, gosh. Okay. So um, a special guardianship order was originally done as um, an adoption light 
type thing for um, foster carers. So um, it's about uh, sharing parental responsibility with the, with the birth parents, but actually um, carers such as Natalie will have will have a bit more say basically so it's almost kind of 50 50 but not quite 50 50 um uh, and then so that's the most used in the uk uh uh in england and wales the most used kind of legal order to legally secure permanence for a child um we used to have child arrangement orders um and there used to be some care orders and things like that but it's uh, stos are the most used orders um and i suppose it's now looking at the reality of stos being used and making sure that there's support plans in place but also that they get reviewed but also that there's enough financial support in place that goes alongside that for too long local authorities cash strapped local authorities i'm not blaming local authorities because they're cash strapped but for too long they have found ways to navigate without giving the right amount of necessary financial and practical support so does the SDO being in place mean there is financial and practical support for the carers? It should be. So, yes. And uh, different local authorities have been taken to court in terms of that happening. Um, that doesn't mean that, again, not blaming local authorities, um, it doesn't mean that local authorities won't try and see where they can be uh, most cost effective with their support. Yes. And because the, the yes. question I had for Sam in the last podcast was basically, is the Conservative government placing this focus on kinship care as basically a cost saving measure? Is it a cheaper way of looking after kids than, well, I know it's going to be cheaper than residential care. It's likely going to be cheaper than foster care. Um, is that often the approach that is taken? Um, I mean, it's definitely, the, I think what we've always wanted to say around um, when we flag particularly the fact that investing well in kinship care can produce kind of positive knock-on effects for the state is that we're not just talking about doing that for the sake of saving money you're doing that for the sake of producing funds which can be reinvested back into making sure that kinship care is well supported and that other areas of children's social care or what other public services that have sort of been eroded over the past decade or so are given the kind of strength and the stability that they need um i think there's a real danger that in sort of efforts just to focus attention on kinship care that kind of core concept of wanting to make sure that that sort of support is 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 equalized leveled up however you may want to phrase it in the political parlance of our times um that's kind of given its due yeah, regard as well because it's it's not just a, a cost saving measure it's the right thing to do for families it's been ignored for quite a long time but it, it's it shouldn't be a cost saving measure but it may be a cost saving measure sam you're talking in terms of uh, the way things should be done not in the way things are being done would you say that the way they are being done is as a cost saving measure I'd say that at the minute, particularly what we find is a lot of local authorities who aren't delivering sort of good support for kinship carers, including special guardians. And that's for a number of different reasons. One, as Paul has mentioned, because they're cash strapped and they're looking for ways to deliver that more cost effectively. Secondly, because the guidance and legislation that kind of provides that sort of framework for how support is delivered is really, really poor. So I don't think anyone's going out with the intention of particularly in their minds thinking, oh, let's move this towards kinship care because it's going to save us money. But I think there's a direction sort of on a strategic level that, yes, if you're a local authority who's looking 
um, at your budget, you're looking at where you're spending your money at the minute, which is predominantly at that very sort of extreme end of residential care for children in a look-after system. You're thinking about, well, in the future, if I invest well in kinship care, and this is the argument that we've tried to make all the time, that not only will you provide something that families need today, but also actually it's going to help your economic position as a local authority too. Yeah, so I've been looking at, I've been, again, for the for, for, for this book by... Um, so part of my fellowship, I'm writing a book. Now you this think is going to be some book, Paul. What's it going to be called? I know. You think it's, I, okay, I'm not sure yet. So if okay. anyone has got any idea what it should be called, I think something like In Between Spaces, something like that, because it's about the ambivalent space that kinship care is. Is it, a, is it a family, another way that a family can be normal? Is it a family service? But also the ambivalence with uh, different children in terms of their relationships, all of these kind of In Between Spaces. But in within that book, I kind of look at how kinship care is treated in different uh, different countries, and certainly within uh, when you look at countries that are kind of liberal, very kind of neoliberal, capitalist societies, actually they really want to increase kinship care because it has this whole idea of families looking after their own, great, cost saving, great not too much interference from the state, really, really good. And the difficulty is, no matter which side of the political kind of spectrum you're, you're on, actually, the people that are making the policies, that is the bottom line for them. You know, you have to talk about money. Actually, that's what's, that's, that, you know, as much as I can go on about the experiences of children and all this kind of stuff, actually, the bottom line is, Will this be a cost-effective way to ensure that less children are being looked after by the state? Natalie, I want to come back to you. You were speaking, uh, we got off on a very interesting, but what I would say was a tangent there. Um, you were talking about the STO that you have in place. Um, uh, so I'm guessing there's social work involvement in, in, your, in your situation? Yes, there was, yeah. There is. And have you found that valuable? Because the question I want to ask is, do kinship carers, as far as you understand, welcome social work involvement so if we um, ask, just put, think about your own situation have you welcomed the involvement um yes i did just purely because i wanted to keep little ones safe um you know i wanted him to keep within within the family so i was open to doing the assessments you know and i was just i was pretty open with them um and it, and it was for the sake of little one um now is is it a nice process no it's not but it's something that i knew i had to do um, to get the end result. So you've just got to go with it. And I think you've just got to look at it in a positive way rather than negative because it can really get on top of you if you just look at it in a negative way. Okay. And were you supported by social workers through that process or are things that the social workers that were working with you could have done better? Initially, no. When So it was at, it was an emergency placement to begin with. Um, and I'd say for the first two months, there was no support whatsoever. It, I didn't even know what I was doing. I was just... A, like my nephew was brought along and I was just like, right, okay. I was told to quit my job. And it was like, well, what do I do now? There was no no advice given to me, no leaflets. And it was just like, and when I tried to ask questions, it they were just I was getting ignored. I think I was like put to the bottom of the list because it it was it was safe now. Yeah. Um so I feel like I had to go out and do a lot of my own research. Um and then I found kinship. Um and I, I and to be honest with you, I think if it wasn't for kinship. I, I don't think I'd got I'd have got as far with the SGO as I, as I, as I have now, um, compared to when if I wouldn't have been in, in contact with kinship. 
So are you receiving financial support then as well? I am, yes. Um, and I do, I do believe a lot of the financial support I got is based off good advice that I got from people that had already been through the same situation that 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 could say to me, look, this is what you need to ask for. Because if you don't know to ask for it, you're not going to get it. Um, I've got another friend in the same situation who got absolutely nothing because she didn't know to ask for it. And it's it, it's that, it's that if you don't know to ask it, they are going to try to save money. They are going to hold it back. And it's but just, you had to give up your job to look after the little ones. Yes, so, I, mean, I did, yeah. That would put you in a really difficult situation if you weren't receiving financial support. It, it did, yeah. It really put me in. Even with the financial support, I was still in a situation of I lost, I were down to like a third of my income. Um, so, yeah, it's it, and it's it's one of those choices you make at the time. Like, well, look, this is just temporary for now. I've just got to go with it. Um, but, yeah, it did put me in financial situation. Um, quite a bad one, to be honest with you. But now it's... Now it's done. I'm 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 lucky that it was the care proceedings were done quite quick and the SGO was signed because I just I don't think I'd have been able to stretch it out much longer. Yeah. And we yeah. know how much pressure social workers at the front line are under, Paul. But I mean in that situation, if the little one was being placed with Natalie um uh to be kept safe, you know, in the short mm-hmm. term that's been achieved. But if the family mm-hmm. finances are hit terribly because Natalie's given up her job essentially mm-hmm. not just the little one who's been placed with Natalie, but potentially her own kids, you know, are in a much worse situation. Um, I'm guessing that you could argue that that's a very short-sighted approach for the social workers to be taking if that provision and that support isn't being brought to Natalie and brought to her attention. Again, you know, as, uh, I'm not here to, yeah, I love social work, I'm not here to say that it's it's poor social work or, or the bad local authorities. I think as a society, I think it's shameful, actually, that people have to, uh, have this, you know, if you don't ask, you don't get type attitude. I think that's appalling that we're letting down families like in this way, when actually they are stepping in to do these really tough jobs. It's really tough jobs with families that a lot of families where there's lots of stuff going on, lots of fractious, very difficult relationships going on. And we shouldn't be having to say, right, well, actually, you need to make the effort to to really, really make sure that you get the right amounts or actually you know and as much as I love kinship for example you know it's not good enough that actually we need to have charities to come in to do this work we should be doing this stuff we should be supporting families carers children in alignment with what they need without them having to ask for it. I mean, there must be thousands and tens of thousands of families across the UK which have informal kinship arrangements, Paul, like we were discussing, you were explaining at the very start. Do we have any, do we have any way of quantifying how many children would be in an informal kinship sort of arrangement? So yeah, the data picture on kinship carers is a really difficult one. We do not get the same kind of level of statutory data collection around kinship care that we do for other sort of forms. Um, the things that we get, for example, every year from local authorities via the collections they give to the government are things like the number of children who leave the local authority care system into special guardianship or a child arrangements order each year, and the number of children who are in kinship foster care. So they're being looked after in an arrangement that's been supported by the local authority where their family and friends are stepping up in that kind of kinship foster care role. We've got some analysis that was done um, by a researcher called Denethi at the University of Bristol, um, which looked at the 2011 census data to look at children who were living with, that was actually just family relatives rather than family and friends um, carers. 
And that suggested there were around about 150,000 children growing up in kinship care in England, at least. And, you know, by and large, we expect that's an underestimate that data isn't going to reach everyone. Uh, and also, obviously, that was back in 2011. So we've had, you know, over a decade's worth of different kind of challenges and influences on children's social care and child welfare intervention that have likely impacted on that too. So that's a very long answer of, of, of to say, no, we don't know. We expect the vast majority of those arrangements are informal. Um, we can say, based on the data, that roughly about 7%, if I remember correctly, is likely the kind of kinship foster care element. You've got the rest of the sort of legal orders, special guardianship, child arrangements, but by talking the vast majority of, of arrangements likely being informal. Yeah, so it's it's basically we kind of uh, researchers, policymakers, we all kind of agree now it's around probably about 200,000, more than 200,000. But the interesting thing that's just coming out now, actually, is in terms of uh, minorities, minoritized um, children. So we know that there are less minoritized children in formal kinship care. Now, that's against if we look at adoption. And I, I know I'm against comparing to fostering adoption. But if we look against fostering adoption, there's higher disproportionate amounts um, of uh, children from minoritized ethnicities. In fostering adoption um, and then in formal kinship care there are higher amounts so actually there's some kind of dare I say institutionalized kind of racism that's got kind of going on there so that's a really really interesting thing that's just just beginning to be kind of researched into um, at the moment. Sorry take me through that again you're saying there are more mm. uh, minoritized children in adoption uh, context is that what you said? So there's more minoritized children in adoption and fostering Yes. So in care. Um, and there's less in formal kinship care. Okay. If we're going to do that comparison. Yeah. Okay. And there's less in, uh, so that, and there's more in informal kinship yes. care. Yes. Sorry. Gotcha. So yes. Yes. There's yes. more, yeah, there's more families, minoritized families that are not getting the support, financial, practical support gotcha. that they need. Gotcha. Gotcha. And I suppose, you know, so that could be a number of factors. I'm sure you I mean you can talk me through this, but in terms of the informal nature of kinship care, you could argue that in many cultures, there is more of a sense of the wider family rather than just the immediate nuclear family to, to care for the child. But you're suggesting it's also because the resources are going to uh, white families, I suppose. Is that, is that, is that the argument? There's loads of, yeah, there's loads of different arguments to it, but, but there's, uh, uh, Families in Harmony, is that correct, Sam? Um, who are kind of looking at the, these types of things. And, you know, there's also the cultural stuff of um, different cultures not wanting to have social work intervention, um, being scared for some reason. Minoritized um, uh, families um, are scared to be involved with social services. We know why that is. Um, so all of these different things will kind of fit together. Um, but as I say, the end result is that lots of these families and a high proportion of families from minoritized um, ethnicities will not get the support, uh, financial and practical support that they need. Thanks, Paul. Natalie, I, just coming back to your experience, what sort of challenges have you faced um, since you've taken the little guy on? I can just imagine um, 10 week old baby, but can you talk us through your experience? Um, yeah, so uh, at, the, at the beginning, I did, I did, I found it very hard. Um, Obviously, birth mother, I found it hard to get along with contact and things like that. Just because, like, as as his as his auntie, I was quite annoyed 
that it had got to that stage. Um, and, and I don't feel like that, that that's ever looked at. Like, it's like you're not allowed to have no feelings and you're not allowed to feel a certain way. And it, it, it's hard to try to control your feelings, you know. You just want to say, look, I, I'm super cross with you, but you can't. You've, just, you've got to hold back um, for the sake of the child. And it's I found that a hard one, a real hard one. Um, and also, like, you'll, you'll know yourself, Paul, look like going through care proceedings and things, contacts got to be at the top of everything. So even if we were showing up, and birth mum necessarily wasn't we still had to show up and I found that was for me that was hard having to having to take him there and just keep going with it and and I knew it wasn't in his best interest but it was just we've got to keep going um which I, I didn't like de- having to deal with that but I did and I suppose that what what is useful to now start looking at things away from that contact time to start thinking of fam- things in terms of family connections so how can those family connections be done in a safe way and a more consistent way yes so whether that be I don't know so some of the kids that I was speaking to they were talking about using photos for example or using technology or actually only writing letters uh, at some points within their lives and rather than have these very kind of sterile things where you have all these families that are almost like pretending and performing to put on these things and there's a child in the middle going you're all pretending and you're performing and and I don't think that's helping a child because they kind of know that something's kind of a bit weird going on here isn't it I'm just thinking though as well Natalie from your perspective I mean that's going to have you're talking about the emotional toll that's having on you I mean Mm -hmm. that's an issue that foster carers would also face but I guess with that degree of separation they may not be as acute um were you offered any support at all in terms of how you were able to cope emotionally with that that sort of None whatsoever. Okay. I, t- I turned to kinship and that that's the only support I was offered. I was never offered not one. I did actually mention it to the social worker at one point. I said, look, I said, is there any support groups? can go to-? She said, oh, yeah, there is. I can get your details. They never came. So it was just like, yeah, I completely turned to kinship. And any support I've had, like advice, any emotional support, it's been from kinship solely. And I'm just, I mean, I don't want to be critical at all, Paul, of colleagues that are in practice because, you know, doing incredibly difficult work under, you know, huge pressure, caseloads and a cash strap service but in terms of just trying to address those those basic issues um that natalie's talking about do you think i mean i i'm I'm hypothesizing is there a lack of awareness perhaps of the tool it takes on a kinship care compared to the tool it would take on a foster care when there is that direct family link and the issues that are being dealt with within the kinship um, situation are affecting everybody at an emotional level do you think that do you think that in certain circumstances, goes unrecognised? So it depends. It depends is the answer. It depends on local authorities, depends on individuals. We know that actually in terms of kinship care, it's something about our values as, as professionals, as workers. You know, that's why we talk about reflexivity, being reflective all the time, thinking about your own values, how that impacts upon your work. What you feel matters may not be the same as what family feels matters. Some local authorities are doing marvellous jobs you know they have specific teams and they understand the nuances the complexities of kinship care they have kind of uh, peer support groups they have non-means tested financial support all of this kind of stuff that really really helps Um, as a practitioner and as someone that kind of does assessments um, I know that we get given 12 weeks to do an assessment and usually actually carers come quite late in the process so sometimes we're only given four weeks six weeks when I go and speak to a 
um, a potential carer, and they are, of course, I'll look after, you know, my child. Of course, I'll look after the, the child and the family. Absolutely, I'll do anything, you know, and 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 that's great. It's only around kind of week four when these carers are kind of going, this is really complicated. I don't know if I can do it. That's the bit where you go, right, now this is where we're getting into it. Because actually that's the bit that will sustain you. And that's the bit you need support for. These kind of ambivalent thoughts of, you know, I'm really grateful to have this kid here, but also I'm really, really annoyed that my son, my daughter, my brother, my sister wasn't able to do that. You know, I love my sister. I love my brother. But they've done this to this child. So all of those really, really complex stuff, that's not going to take four weeks to support. That's not going to take four weeks to sort out. That's going to take a lifetime to sort out. And so really good assessment will look at family scripts. They will look at how families function um, uh, in order to support there. They'll also look at safety. They'll also do risk assessments, all of that kind of stuff. Very complex work, working alongside carers. And it's a huge, complex piece of work that needs to be ongoing, needs to be revised in huge detail. So that's good social work. We need the time. We need the resources to do that. Sam, from the perspective of Kinship, the charity you work for, I mean, Paul's talking about a lot of pressures there and issues that need to be addressed in terms of how social workers can support on a long-term basis um, children and carers that are involved in a kinship care arrangement. I mean, you as a charity, are you working with local authorities to make sure that they have the the resources that, I don't mean financial resources, but in terms of uh, the understanding and the training they need to, to address these issues that Paul was discussing? Yeah, there's a few things that we think kind of kinship specific social work teams, for example, would be able to do to really help improve the lives of children and families. There was actually a really good piece of work that Professor Joan Hunt did in 2021, which kind of explored practitioners' understandings and experiences kind of working in in kinship care. And it spoke sort of really well about the kind of those local authorities who did have dedicated kinship teams and the kind of ways that their assessments worked and the kind of broad mix of skills that they kind of stole from other elements of kind of more established children's social care practice, but also kind of some of the unique complexities that arise and the kind of social work skills that you need to be able to work successfully with kinship families. Um, So if any of your listeners haven't had a look at that, I would recommend it. And I can see sort of Paul nodding along with me, which is quite reassuring as well. I think it's important (laughs) to recognise, though, that like in order to do that really long term, constructive, substantial kind of practice and culture change, there needs to be a certain degree of kind of workforce and financial stability in local authorities. And so I think that's why whenever we're trying to kind of push local authorities and, and, and realistically, there's a lot more they can be doing. It's important to recognise the context, obviously, in which they're working. And that's why you need the central government to step up to deliver the kind of stability that local authorities need to do this well. Um, but also we need kind of local authorities to be on board with the idea of, right, this might, this is actually going to look very, very different for you as a, as a service than stuff that you're used to before. Sam, that was very interesting. You were talking about um, not just financial stability, but also stability in workforce, because we do know that when there's a lot of turnover in social work teams, you know, churn, as is often discussed, high vacancy rates, that can be very, very difficult um, in terms of building long-term relationships and, you know, uh, relationships with service users. Um, so, Paul, Sam pointed that out as a, as, a, as a specific issue. Has that something, is that something that's come up in your research, the turnover in, 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 in social work teams? Absolutely. We, we know that, um, that 
that has an impact, but also kind of the shape of social work, so where social work is going. So managerialism, all of that kind of stuff, kind of tick box approaches, very uh, sausage meat factory, if I got that phrase right, yes, <laughs> sausage meat factory um, type of thing, you know, from uh, just treating people as numbers, not only not only uh, families and children as numbers, but also social workers just as numbers, bodies on the ground, all of that kind of stuff. Um, and that has a huge impact in terms of actually um, the culture that exists. Social work, again and again, and I'll say this all the time, as an ex-BASWA PO, of course I'll say this, social work is a human rights, um, human rights-based profession, and it is also about social justice. You know, it's also about looking at how, how families function. It is not just this intervention will lead this to this intervention. Let's um, get out of there and, and all, all is said and done. You know, we, it needs to constantly evolving. We need to constantly think about what values, be listening. Listening is so key to the, all of this kind of stuff, isn't it? And we need the space to do it. Natalie, have you had consistency in terms of the social workers you've had supporting the, the little guy in your care or has there been a lot of turnover and fluctuation? At the beginning, no. Um, but then we did we did get a new social worker um, around three months in um, and I found the second social worker was very consistent and it did, everything did pick, seem to pick up from then. Um, but I, I think I do need to add the first social, work, social worker, she was still in her first year, um, of being a social worker so I do think that impacted a lot at the beginning um, and, I, and I think I don't know if I said this to Sam before I feel like I, I, I do get everyone's got to learn but I feel like with kinship care there's more emotion involved and I feel like you need a more experienced social worker to be able to deal deal with kinship care rather than a first year straight in because I, I were asking for things I were asking questions and she didn't know the answers to them um, so I feel I feel like yeah I feel like there should be more experienced social workers when dealing with more emotions within kinship kinship care. Natalie, I thanks, and I just just coming on back, you know, in terms of the situation that you're in. I mean, I know how difficult parenting young kids can be. You might have just come back in uh, from school. I don't know if I can hear them background, um, but. You know, in kinship care arrangements, when there is, say, a grandmother or um, uh, an aunt looking after kids, perhaps uh, an aunt that's, you know, um, there's a bigger age gap between the children and the aunt than there is in your case. You know, can you imagine looking after a baby in your 60s? You know, there must be a real challenge associated with that. Yeah. Do you know, like, I've, I've thought about this myself and, and I've just thought, like, I'm I'm still in my 30s. I'm really savvy. You know, I've gone out and done all my research now, now for me, someone in the sixties that not that's not so savvy, and there is potentially people sat out there in the sixties being kinship carriers that don't that don't have they can't get the advice that can't do the research that are not savvy, and they're just they're just getting by without without that advice and help, and it, I think that makes me feel it. it I think it's just it, it's it's terrible, really. It's terrible because the, no one's really open with the advice. I wouldn't say. So I just, yeah, I just, I, I, just not a good situation. I don't want to be, I don't want to be negative, but there are issues that we need to discuss in terms of potential problems with kinship care. Um, I mean, where there has been a family breakdown, where there's been negative factors which have led to the family breakdown, 
Sam and Paul, is there a risk that those can then be perpetuated within a kinship care setting, you know, because it's family members, um, people are so close to the problems uh, that have led to the, the family breakdown? The difficulty is that, we're, that we shy away from risk when we talk about kinship care. We And that's a huge issue. It's a huge issue that I come against a lot in my work. Uh, when I'm talking to academics, when I'm talking to different organisations, is that as soon as we start to talk about risk, then all of a sudden we go down that route, route of, um, all of a sudden we go down that road of, oh, um, are you saying that that these are risky families and we shouldn't, and I'm not saying that at all, but what I am saying is that children have told me that they want to feel safe within their placement. They've outright said that to me. They said it, I saw it in, in my uh, in my thesis when I was doing the research. I only saw that at the very end because my mind is kind of blinkered, not on, focused on risk. And then when I look back at what the children have spoken to me about, Throughout every single conversation, they were talking about, we want to feel safe. We want to feel safe. So if they're talking about it, we should be talking about it. And that's not to say that these are really, really risky situations and there's intergenerational risk that comes down and all of this kind of stuff. But there has been some risks within that family that need to be addressed and that need to be managed. And unfortunately, they need to be managed within that family, usually because social workers and social services are very used to saying, see you later, we're not gonna do it. So that's what needs to be addressed. We're just starting to kind of, uh, I'm sort of trying to bring together um, a few kind of academics and researchers, and we're going to tackle risk head on and say, what actually should we be talking about in terms of safety and risk? Because we we need to stop shying away from from risky conversations about risk. Yeah, and I think the the challenge with that comes is because people have seen risk kind of be the dominant framework in which obviously children's social care decisions have been generally been made. And so the the way that kind of risk I think has been used sort of thinking about particularly high profile child protection cases, for example, it, it becomes this word that people then fear and don't want to use because of the contentions it has in kind of different contexts. I guess, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, but it comes back to that kind of age or thing of, well, you know, what, what, what is best for that child? And that often, as Paul has quite rightly mentioned, involves speaking to the child directly to find out. Um, but it's, you know, it's important that I think across any sort of decisions that are being made, like nothing becomes a dogma. Like the Children Act is very, very clear on if if children cannot live with their birth parents, then there are mechanisms by which you should be exploring family networks beforehand because of that kind of close connections. But that's not a dogma to pursue in, you know, uh, in the absence of, of other factors, which are really, really important. Um, and it's just about thinking, yeah, what is the circumstances in which this is the right decision for this right for this child at that right particular time, and looking at that in that whole family context, rather than thinking about this is a decision in the abstract of whatever might else be going on in that family's life. And it's support it's supporting families to deal with that, isn't it? So it's you know for for Natalie, it's about having that being able to have an experienced person to be able to have those very difficult, quite confusing, not quite sure in between kind of conversations having someone that's that's that that you can talk to about those really complex things that's what that's what's important am i is, yeah, is that right it, it, it is go, because you, like they, they've had first-hand experience they've dealt with that already and I, I feel like that you can't nothing can nothing can trump that like 
they've been through that. It's like someone inexperienced that's not been through that can't say, well, you need to do this because they've not been in that situation. So, yeah, I I do believe someone that's experienced something that you're going through is it is it's invaluable to have, have, have the advice of them natalie thank you so much sam thanks for coming on paul it's been great to have you back it's been a really really helpful conversation um and i hope that everyone who listens takes an awful lot from it thanks so much for your time today thank you thanks Andy. thanks yeah thank you thank you it's great to be back thank you